the rules stand. And what if I break them? Then there'll be consequences. Punishment. Yes. No, 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 stop. We're, we're not we're not doing another Fifty Shades thing. I just, I can't. I mean, it is probably the most mainstream reference you have when it comes to kink, or maybe if you saw normal people this year, you'd have an idea of kink involving leather, pain, whips, chains, masters and slaves. But it's so, so much more. It's not just stuff or, or a particular role play. It's a certain obsession and fascination that can take anyone at any time. And it can take any form. Kink is a part of the sex world, but if you've never ventured much past the vanilla, you might be wondering how fetish works, whether everyone has one, and how you find them. Nat Tenchich here, and in this episode, we're honing in on the basics of kink and looking at the psychology behind it, how to find your fetish, and how to bring kink play into relationships. Someone who works with kinks and fetishes regularly in her practice is psychologist Dr. Sarah Ashton. She's the director and founder of SHIPS, Sexual Health and Intimacy Psychological Services. Sarah says it's a term that's thrown around a lot, which can cause a bit of confusion, but it's actually pretty straightforward. Basically, it's an umbrella term that encompasses a whole range of atypical sexual experiences so like anything that sits outside the norm and of course when it comes to sexual experiences like who knows what the norm is because there's so much diversity but yeah anything that's atypical in the erotic realm um, in terms of pleasurable fun intimate self-expressive interests or behaviors I mean I guess you could even say anything other than missionary right (laughs) so what's a fetish Is it the same thing? Well, Sarah says it comes under the umbrella of kink. So a fetish is a sort of like a subcategory, I guess you could say, um, and it's a specific arousal to an object or a specific target. What sorts of like categories or common themes arise when it comes to fetish? Like what are sort of the big ones? The main categories would probably be anything that involves like a difference in power. So like a hierarchical power structure in terms of the relationship between the people involved, anything that involves um, intense stimulation. So um, this might involve physical or psychological pain. Another category would be forms of sexual stimulation. So this might involve sensory deprivation, sensory confusion or restraints. Another category would be role-playing or fantasies of of different sexual scenarios. And then um, maybe the use of um, objects or material to, again, enhance the the sensations and the sexual experience. Um, And then, you know, just kind of like anything else that (laughs) um, there's, there's, you know, when you try and think and and list all the kind of kinks and fetishes, I mean, you know, you think of it, there's probably a kink or a fetish that's involved with it. So, yeah. Okay. So how does a kink or fetish develop and where does it come from? One way to look at kinks is that they are a form of, or they can be a form of emotional reconciliation. So if you've had a difficult emotional experience or even like just any kind of experience that maybe was a bit scary in your past, and you look at the experience of like sex and intimacy. Sex and intimacy is is obviously something that feels nice. It gives you like lots of wonderful um, chemicals that move through your, your body and your mind. Um, and so 
a lot of the time, you know, kinks or particular scenarios like role playing um, can actually provide like an alternative ending and an alternative emotional association with perhaps an experience which was was not so great in the past right so if we think about you know like a a daddy king for instance right so um, a lot of people grow up perhaps with fathers who are maybe a little bit more emotionally withheld or they they don't know how to express love and 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 warmth and communication perhaps in the way that some people would, would like to receive or would need to receive it in that way. So what the, what happens is that um, there can there can often be a lot of you know neglect or, or trauma associated with this experience and daddy kinks could a way that you could explain it I mean and look this really just depends on the individual person um, but is that it's it's creating a new association right with with this kind of kink with this dynamic that it, allows there to be an experience of like new chemicals, new kind of pleasure and association with a dynamic which potentially in the past was painful or difficult, you know. And then if we add on on the an added topic of like sexual behaviour with like, a, you know, a parent is kind of forbidden, is taboo, then anything that's taboo is going to involve an element of adrenaline and psychological stimulation um, when when you engage with it right and adrenaline is going to add to the level of of sexual excitement and arousal that you actually experience right so if you kind of take all those kind of factors together those are some of the things that could influence someone's preference for you know a daddy daughter kind of scenario hypothetically Sarah says there's a lot of shame and stigma in society around kink. And it's because people take these fantasies literally when they aren't really meant to be literal. On the surface, if you consider like a lot of kinks or different kind of scenarios that might be kind of stereotypically associated with kink culture, like, you know, whips and chains and force and violence even, you know, on the surface level, if you don't know what's going on, then of course you're going to look at this situation and go, oh, that makes me feel uncomfortable or I I don't understand or that doesn't seem right to me, right? And what's missing from, from what people are seeing is all the the safety, the discussion of consent, the psychological experience for both people that's going on underneath, which is entirely different and it, and it might involve empowerment and safety and pleasure and that this is what's achieved through engaging in this, this kink. So really it actually just comes down to not really understanding um, what's involved. Just going back to the psychology behind it, what's the link between trauma and fetishes? We had a listener message in to say that they were a victim of sexual assault who lacks forced role play. This is actually a really common kink um, and, and actually a lot of people experience distress because they, um, they, they might feel, you know, ashamed or, or they might have their own self-judgment attached to, to this experience or something that they find arousal. I think I just want to sort of say up front that, you know, um, I was reading some, some really important research recently um, that, and they found that there was actually no difference between the general population and the, um, like, a, a sample of BDSM community and the level of trauma that they had experienced in their life, right? So I think it's really, you know, part of just to kind of myth bust a little bit, there doesn't necessarily have to be an association between um, trauma and kink, you know, or, or a higher level of, of trauma within the kink community. And just in terms of, okay, so um, let's break down what actually might be going on here in terms of, you know, if, if you're someone who, who 
knows that you're actually like you have a particular trauma and now you've got a kink that's connected with this trauma for sure well like i was saying before the the experience of of engaging in kink practice um is could actually be really um a form of 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 healing and and a way of working through this this trauma that has happened for you. So, if we think about the sorts of things which might be involved in um, in a sexual trauma, so there might be fear, there might be violation of boundaries, there might be um, all sorts of internal and external sensory associations that that bring about this experience of trauma. Essentially, what you're doing in your brain when you engage in a a scene that enacts the same sort of scenario is that you're giving your brain the opportunity to reassociate different experiences with this. So um, you, with the same sort of scenario, so with the same trauma, you might then associate safety, you might associate autonomy, you get to associate con- control over the experience and you might even associate pleasure. And, and you have the experience to to communicate about what you need, to assert boundaries, and and you get full permission to emotionally explore and 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 almost have perhaps a catharsis of of feeling. So if you set this up in the right way, where you're actually you've um, you trust the person that you're exploring this with, um, that that you're in control, that you've articulated all of this, you're actually kind of counteracting some of the perhaps traumatic associations with with this, and it's a way to work it through. That research is so fascinating and kind of what it says to me is that certain people will just use this particular outlet to work through their trauma or the things that have happened in their childhoods whereas others might turn to food or work or substances or whatever you use to cope we all have our different ways of playing these things out and working through them so what makes one person turn to kink or fetish over something or someone else Well, Sarah says from her own observation, it might be because they have more of a preference or openness to sexual experiences. Perhaps they're they're somebody who's quite sort of self-reflective and, you know, um, is really kind of, you know, likes to be in tune with their experiences and and likes to explore different relationship dynamics within the people that they're interacting with. Um, But I think that it is is really important to discuss all this. It's really important to move this out of a space of kind of, you know, um, stigma and shame because, you know, if you don't do this well, it, it can be really harmful, you know, and and I so I think that it is really important that people can get the right information, that they can be supported in understanding themselves, that they can be su- supported in, in kind of setting up, you know, consent dynamics with the people that they're playing with. Have you ever been clicking around, going through porn recommendations and finding something a bit unconventional that completely grabbed you. Kind of like an eye-widening, super hot obsession sets in and you think, oh shit, i got to look at more. I Is this my kink? If you've ever gone through the process of discovering you have a kink or fetish, it can be a little exciting and confronting. So we wanted to know what it was like for you. And here's what you told us. So I got into light bondage as a late teen with my partner at the time just as a little bit of experimentation. And I guess it kind of planted the seed and it's kind of grown into a bit of a passion of mine. 10, 15 years later, I've kind of pushed all the boundaries of BDSM um, from my perspective. And I think as long as it's safe and consensual, it can be a really intimate moment between you and your partner or partners. 
it builds a really solid foundation of trust. And that's a really good feeling to have. Not only that, I feel like, yeah, you're playing a dominant position if you're the dom, but in my eyes, it's almost a sub position because you're the one who's really putting in the work. You're the one who's, you know, really providing the attention, the prep. And I think ultimately it can be a great experience for both partners. Hi, I'm Sam, 24 from Sydney, and I have an inflatable toy and balloon fetish. So my fetish actually started off as a phobia. When I was a kid, I was really scared of balloons. Um, just couldn't be in the same room as them. I felt really lightheaded and sick and, and just hated it. And that sort of continued on till I was sort of 12, 13, started to hit puberty. And then I sort of got more used to them and got to a point where I was willing to sort of blow one up. And uh, when I did, I found that I got aroused by it and really enjoyed it. Um, and then the same thing happened whenever I'd inflate inflatable toys. So like beach balls or like pool toys and that sort of stuff. And then it sort of extended from there. And then my girlfriend, we got together when we were 18, still at school. And I remember like it was probably a year into that relationship before I mentioned it to her that I had this fetish and we were still quite young and still exploring sex. And so we didn't try it for probably nearly three years into the relationship. Um, she was the one that actually brought it up and said, hey, I, I know you're into this, like, do you want to try it? So we ended up, we went out and um, and we bought a beach ball and a few balloons and went home and, and started inflating them. And I found that I was still quite scared of the balloons. Like, I was still scared of them popping, but I was more into the beach ball. And so from there, it's kind of extended on that. And I don't really do much with balloons anymore, but mainly inflatable toys. So my girlfriend and I, we... We would often use them in, in sort of foreplay before we have sex. We'll inflate them and, and play with them before we get into it. Hi, my name is Gigi and I'm from Perth, Western Australia. So I enjoy being submissive in a dynamic with my partner and in particular degradation. So I'd say that stemmed from the kind of music I listened to before I was a teen and as a teen a lot of sort of um old rap stuff where you know like the woman's being thrown around and spanked and the man is having their way with them and then also the type of porn I watched was pretty much degradation porn from the get-go um and that ranged from you know just sort of name calling like slut and whore and things like that straight through to slapping spitting and everything from there and I didn't really get to explore any of that until I was about 19 and I was working for quite a large Australian lingerie and sex toy company. Uh, and through them, I met loads of different people. I met, you know, um, professional dominatrixes, dancers, escorts, swingers, all different types of fetishists. Uh, and it was fantastic because you make connections and I got to go to things like um, kink events in Perth that I didn't even know existed. I didn't even know we had a community for it here. Um, and I was able to meet people that were already really confident in their kinks and confident in their fetishes. Um, and the doors just kind of kept opening for me to be able to explore them and know that they were normal and really comfortable. Um, and from those experiences, I've been able to take my own kinks and fetishes into um, a setting with a new partner and be pretty confident about that and maybe pick something up from them and vice versa. And we'll get into how to navigate kinks and fetishes with partners and in relationships really soon. But first, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but there's a bit of a saying that everyone's got a kink or everyone has their fetish. 
But how true is that? Like, does everyone actually have a kink? Sarah says that if we think about the definition of it, which is everything that sits outside the quote unquote normal, then there's a lot more people than we'd think who have one. I think that because we don't talk that much about sex and sexuality and our sexual interests, most people assume that whatever their interest is, is like, you know, just really strange and obscure and their own. But actually there's just so much more diversity in the general population than you actually think. A lot more people might have kinks than, than you know, you would expect. <laughs> and Sarah says it's the same thing for fetishes too. Not everyone has them, but a lot of people do. So is there a way to figure out if you have one or not? Usually if you have a fetish, you, you, you know, because <laughs> um, you, might, you might be experiencing arousal to something that, that you, you didn't expect or that you think might sit outside the spectrum of what is, you know, quote unquote normal. But I think that usually if you, you know, you're kind of aware and you're present with experiences in your, in your day, you, you might you know, notice that you're feeling aroused when, you know, you're having a particular kind of interaction or you see something or, you know, maybe you're having a sexual experience and there's an aspect of that, you know, in terms of what you're seeing or or anything that you're, you know, engaging with your senses that just really like turns you on and really arouses you. Um, and so then it might be, you know, you might kind of explore that a little bit more and see whether that's a specific interest that you have. We spoke a bit earlier about trauma and kinks in your childhood, but where else can they come from? Like, can they develop later in life? Yeah. So one of the other things that can happen, particularly with fetishes, is that uh, you can have a, a paired association with arousal and with a particular object or experience or sensation, right? So this can happen in your childhood, but can also happen later in life. So our brains are association machines. So if we have an orgasm and, and then we kind of pair that with, so it depends on what we're focusing on in that moment. So any sort of sensation, anything visual, any smell, anything we taste, right? And we're focused in on that in the moment and we're having the, the experience of arousal or orgasm. Then our brain pairs those things together, right? And particularly if that orgasm is if it's early on, that's going to be more neurologically powerful. But if it's if it's significant, that will also be neurologically powerful. So if it's a really good orgasm and or if it's um, repeated over and over again. So if we have an, a paired association with that same point of stimulation and, and orgasm, then those are things that can develop preferences or it can develop, we can develop a, fe a fetish, right? So that can happen, you know, again, much more powerful early on, but it can definitely happen as an, as an adult. And also as we kind of um, explore different parts of ourselves sexually and we kind of evolve as sexual beings, we can discover that we have new preferences and they can explore different parts of ourselves. So it's, it's really never too late. As long as you're open, then you might discover that you have a kink or a fetish that you really enjoy. I think um, when you have that moment, depending on whatever it is, that could be kind of confronting how do you deal with with finding that feeling and and what's a good way to start exploring if that feeling is coming up 
Look, I think that most of the time it's understandable that we have internalised judgment attached to something that we might find arousing that we perceive as sitting outside the norm because, you know, we're social creatures and we want to, like, we want to fit in. We don't want to be different to the people that we're around. But it's just so important that you remember that actually if you're not hurting anyone, there's nothing wrong with, with you know, what you're aroused to and what turns you on. In fact, it's, it's great and it's fun and it can be really amazing to explore that, you know, by yourself or or with anyone else you know so I think that it's natural to have that judgment come up but but I think that if you can if you can be aware of that and then you can kind of you know just remind yourself that actually there's there's nothing to be ashamed of and and that actually this is you know a great part of being human and it's you know something that can really add to your yourself and to your life then that's yeah that might leave you a little bit more open to kind of exploring it further and if you wanted to I guess you know there's so many different places to start depending on how comfortable you feel the internet is (laughs) probably the most you know obvious place to go but there are lots of different curious creatures is a great um organization that um they have uh, podcasts and workshops and they're doing a lot of online workshops at the moment and FetLife is is another online community that uh, provides lots of information about kinks and fetishes and where you can meet like-minded people. Um, and they also run sort of forums and and have lots of different information up. So they might be great places to start if you want to learn a little bit more about it. And if you're dealing with some anxiety around fantasizing about certain things and you're worried about what this means for your physical IRL sex life, Sarah says that just because you're into something doesn't mean it has to translate into real life. There's a lot of power to staying in the realm of fantasy and there can be a lot of excitement in that, especially if you decide to share it with a partner. So how do you tell your partner about your kink or fetish? It can be pretty scary to bring up. They might judge you. They might not be into it. And what if it leaves you sexually incompatible? Even me, someone who's pretty good at being straight up with sex stuff. I had a hard time telling my partner about my kink. Um, We played a bit of hot and cold. Luckily, he's very cool with it and even indulges me from time to time, but it's a pretty hard thing to broach. Well, according to Sarah, it's all about being vulnerable, which we all know is a tricky thing to do. So I suppose the, you know, there's many different ways to kind of come out on and share that with your partner. And it'd be worth thinking about, you know, maybe a few different tactics and, and what's going to be right for you. So you can come out kind of directly where you just sort of like let them know that, th- that this is something that you're into. Um, and if that's how you want to do it, then it'd be really important to think about the time and the place that you that you're going to talk to them. So timing is everything. If you're, you know, just getting ready for work and you you know that you're not going to have a chance to talk about it, then, you know, you're not really setting yourself up to be able to have a emotionally present and, um, and sensitive conversation. So picking a time where you both have the space, have the energy to be able to talk about something and signaling to them that, look, this is something, you know, that's pretty vulnerable, pretty sensitive for you to talk about and reveal so that they know how to anticipate and receive perhaps the thing that that you're about to tell them. But if you want to take a little bit more of an indirect approach, and a lot of the time this is what people do when they're getting to know someone sexually and getting to know a sexual partner, is to really introduce perhaps um, preferences or interests in, in, in subtle ways. So you, you might ask them, hey, you know, what do you think about this kind of fantasy? Or, you know, um, have you ever watched any porn with this in it? You know, what do you think about that? Um, Or you might do a a quiz together where you look at your sexual interests. And I think there's a a few different ones, but some of them allow 
allow you to sort of indicate, oh, I'm really into that. Or, you know, oh yeah, I'd kind of, I'd try that. You know, if you're both kind of revealing things that you like um, and it's not just you, then that can be helpful in kind of broaching the topic. And you never know. <laughs> you never know that maybe even if you're the, the person that you're with isn't into specifically the thing that you're into, they might be, there might be some overlap and there might be some scope for kind of establishing a meeting ground or something or a starting place for you both to explore. Awesome. How do you, um, I guess, receive that information as a partner, especially maybe if you're not adventurously inclined? Um, How do you keep an open mind? Yeah, well, look, I think it's really important with any kind of conversation that you're having, you know, but particularly in this context that you know that this person is being really vulnerable and this is difficult for them to talk about, you know, and that the reason why they're sharing this with you is because they want to be closer to you. Yeah. And that it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be on board with it or that you have to do what they're sharing with you, but in listening to them and thinking about how they would feel. So putting yourself in their shoes, you know, it's really important to kind of, you know, to respond softly and to respond with curiosity, ask questions. Oh, tell me what turns you on about that. When did you start getting interested in that? You know, what does it involve? How much have you tried? Like, if you approach um, this conversation with kindness and curiosity, then that's, yeah, that's really the best way that it can be perceived. And just to reassure them that you're, you're glad that they've, they've shared this with you because it's, it's an investment in the connection, an investment in the relationship. But sometimes learning about your partner's kink or fetish can still be a hard experience, particularly if it's something you find troubling. It's not an easy pill to swallow. Lily got in touch with us because she says she had some issues when her partner came to her with his fetishes. My partner and I have had erectile dysfunction issues and it was very much a psychological thing. Um, it was it, it was very obvious that he was having anxiety issues uh, and perhaps more excitement issues. So when he came to me a year into our relationship and said that he had... Uh, something that he wanted to discuss with me in regards to his sexuality about. Um, it, it did kind of trigger a sense of uh, I was scared and it took him quite some time to get it out. And so he basically came out and said that he had not necessarily an addiction, but he had a, a desensitization to vanilla sex because he had a kink. And his kink was femdom porn. So that's instructional porn where he's instructed by a female dominant on how and when to masturbate, how and when to orgasm. It's very language-based porn. And to be honest, I did find that a little bit threatening, which I know is my own issue to work through. And the other kink that he had was he had dabbled in and found sissy porn quite erotic for him. And that's the one that really troubled me. I I find that really disturbing. Um, Sissy porn worries me. I guess the the brainwashing, the the hypno-sissy porn that that goes on sort of behind the scenes and, and, you know, hypno porn, that really concerns me. So he says that he doesn't watch that anymore because he realised that that was very unhealthy for his, his mental health and he still only finds femdom porn and instructional porn and and that that's that's his kink that's what he he wants and so now that that's come out and I've 
I kind of feel a little bit disturbed by um, he's basically committed to not watch any more porn that of that kind of porn that he's that he's only going to watch vanilla porn or realistic sex. I guess the dilemma for me is that I I don't really know how to move forward from this. I don't really I don't really know whether if something feels if something feels disturbing for me, should I be honoring that emotional response or should I be delving into it and and opening my mind and discovering why it disturbs me and then trying to conquer that? Like should I be trying to recondition my emotional reaction to it or should I be listening to it and and making that a part of my boundary I I don't really know how to move forward in that sense I don't really know how to how to continue I'm just a little bit I'm, I'm quite confused yeah that's a really tricky situation to be in so what should Lily do here's what Sarah reckons I think that it can often be all sorts of different emotional responses in someone when they hear that their partner has a particular sexual interest that perhaps sits outside of what they already know of them or what sits outside of what, you know, their sexual activity has been to date. And, you know, this can be even more difficult perhaps if um, it's involved any kind of secrecy or, um, you know, you, you feel kind of betrayed by this in any way if a person has previously denied it, you know, um, but if they're just, they're, you're just in the process of getting to know them and um, they're sharing this with you for the first time, again, it's important to keep in mind that they're doing this because they, they want to become closer with you. They want you to understand more about them, them sexually. But I think what's equally important is to remember what you, and to connect with what your own needs and your own wants are in this situation. You know, I think that when, it involves, you know, matters of the heart and, you know, when it involves feeling like your relationship might be under threat, one of the most harmful things that people can do is abandon their own preferences and desires and boundaries and just kind of say, well, I'm going to go along with what my partner is interested in or I'm just going to, you know, try this out even though I feel really uncomfortable with it, you know. So it's really important that, you know, whatever you're doing, you're making sure that you're checking in with yourself and seeing whether how you feel about things and what your preferences and responses are. But it sounds like there's a lot of conversation that's needed around this. You know, there, there might be a lot of questions, a lot of shared understanding that needs to happen before, you know, someone can really understand what this means for their relationship, what it means for them personally. And so I think that that's an important starting place. And then, you know, from there, if you figure out, well, okay, I want to see if I, I'm interested in exploring this and, you know, I want to know more about it. Then you might do some, your own research. You might, uh, your partner might be able to help you with that. Or, you know, you might have a different reaction entirely where you sort of saying, well, that's actually not something I'm interested in. So what does that mean for our relationship? You know, how do you feel about having independent sexual interests, you know, having a solo sex life or having a sex life with other people? These are all questions that are really important to ask yourself and to have conversations about in, in your relationship. And also something to think about is that you don't necessarily have to tell your partners about your kinks or fetishes if you don't want to. Esther Perel, um, the Belgian psychotherapist who we've spoken to on this show, actually, and you can go back and hear our conversation with her in this podcast. She talks a lot about having a private erotic life. And Sarah says it's completely okay to not share if you don't want to. And there's no one size fits all when it comes to relationships. 
But you might want to ask yourself if your partner would be upset if you didn't tell them. And if the answer is yes, then maybe you should sit them down and have a chat. There's so much to cover when it comes to kink and fetishes. I think I spoke to Sarah for about four hours and I'm not even kidding. So if you still got lots of questions floating around in your brain, like how open should I be with my fetish? How do I find a kink community? How do I start living a fetish lifestyle? And how do I make sure I'm doing it with the best consent practices and staying safe and not hurting anyone else? Well, don't worry, because we'll cover all of that in our next episode. And if you have any questions or stories, get in touch on the Instagram at Triple J The Hookup.